Hey everyone, welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. I am your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and today we have for you a brand new co-host, Andrew Alleman. That's right. This is a special occasion. Kevin will be back with us next week, but Andrew is my husband, and today he will be playing the role of a smart home skeptic, which actually, Andrew, that's the role you play pretty much every day, right? I can be. I can be. Around this household anyway. Exactly. It's it's hard not to be skeptical when compared to me. So Andrew, just so you guys know, in addition to my husband, he is also a blogger and a podcaster himself. Um, he blogs over at Domain Name Wire about the domain industry, and he also has a podcast about the same topic. So let's get this started. You came on the podcast probably about nine months ago, and at that time, you were pretty... I'm going to say ambivalent, but you were kind of down on all the stuff that I had brought into the house. You actually only liked one thing, I believe, if I recall correctly, and that was the Smart Things Home Hub that I brought in and programmed with our blinds and had them going up and down on a schedule. And since then, I've taken that away from you. Uh, yes, you have. Sorry about that. But I'm hoping that we've brought some other gadgets in the house. Are there any things right now that you actually like? about our smart home setup? Well, to me, the whole game changer, the thing that shifts this to something that is practical is the Amazon Echo. For me, being able to use voice commands to control lights, for example, is great compared to having to you know, open up an app and do it, right? If, if you have to press a few buttons or find your phone, it kind of loses its effectiveness. So to me, that's a huge, I frankly think that as far as this ecosystem is concerned, that could be a big game changer. You know, I mean, you've, you've got the Hue Tap, which is nice because you can control a smart device without, uh, again, getting out your phone. I think the Amazon Echo is, is, uh, is a big deal. All right. And in our house, we mostly use the Echo to turn off the lights downstairs. But do you ever use it or could you see using it for anything else? Uh, yeah, those are the main things. And again, it's one of those things that works part of the time. I don't know if that's Alexa's fault or Echo or if that's the lights that we have in. But I could see myself using it to, for example, control the blinds if the remote is on the other side of the room. Just be lazy and tell it to do that. So if there was a way to hook that into the to the blinds to make them close when it's hot out or sunny or we're about to watch a movie, I think that could be valuable as well. Really, any of the smart connected devices, if you can control them from that, voice is just much easier in most circumstances than using multiple menus on a phone to pull up what you're looking for. By that time, you may as well have just found the remote or you know done the action yourself. Got it. All right. So any other things that you're kind of like thinking, oh, this is a nice to have in the house. Let's see. We've got connected thermostats. I feel like you may not touch the Nest every day, but I feel like that's a device that you certainly use. And I've seen I like you. it. And that's, yeah. And that's very useful too. If say you're out of town and I'm at the office and, um, you know, obviously it'll go to auto away, but to be able to program that. And then when I'm about to head home, program it again, you know, or just on the phone, change it to go to a cooler temperature. I think that's uh, that's valuable. Um, so certainly the the thermostats are good. What else do we have? The blinds when you actually had them hooked up to smart things. And I will confess to you, I actually can hook them into Alexa via both Wink or Smart Things. Okay. 
See, I am. I'm holding out on you, honey. I, I'm a terrible wife. It's going to be a birthday present. Look, 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 the blinds work again. How did you House know? It's not summer. Yeah. I was also We've been married say, a long time. <laughs> you hate keys. And I know our front door doesn't really work with a lot of smart locks out there, but do you have a sense of, would you prefer to have a lock that just opened when you got near it with your phone in your pocket? Or would you, I, I know you like keypad locks. So do you have a sense on how you feel about kind of connected locks? Here's the thing. There's, there's got to be, in addition to having that, I don't know what you call it, but when you walk up to it, it automatically locks, unlocks. There has to be a way to do it manually without having a key as well. So a great example would be the lock we have downstairs where you have the keypad on it and you can do it because there are a number of times I run down to the garage um, where I don't have my phone, you know, and so, and I don't have a key. So I like to be able to, and it's, it's super fast and easy, right? To type in a four digit code, unless your hands are full. So I also question, and maybe there's an answer for this, but take, for example, our garage, not our electric garage door, right? Um, but our other, the door to the garage. Okay. So if it unlocks, we used to have that. In fact, wasn't that smart things where when you pulled into the garage, it automatically unlocked the door that went from our garage to our house. It did. Now I'm going to tell everybody right now we have the Quickset Z-Wave connected locks with a keypad. So they're both connected and they have the keypad. So that's our lock. And yes, we did have it hooked in through SmartThings and you had a presence tag in your car. So when you drove up, the presence tag triggered that lock to the garage to unlock. So that was helpful. Why do you always take away the things that I like? I, I don't get it. It's not because I hate you. Um, the presence tag okay. actually ran out of battery, and I didn't oh, change okay. it. Well, I could I okay. could put that back on because the locks are back on smart things. Um, that is okay. doable. And the other thing is, I took the 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 blinds are controlled by a Z Wave controller that is a bit mm-hmm. gimpy to install. It's not actually it's not recognized by a lot of the hubs that we have. It's not recognized by any of them. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to install. And so I unins- whenever I uninstall it, to reinstall it takes a little more time and effort. And I usually end up unprogramming our blinds and that costs $80 sure. for people to come back and fix. And then you get sad. And I, I get grumpy. Yeah, I do. I do. Um, so there's, there's so, a disincentive there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was a little suspect on this idea of, you know, so I guess then as you walked up to the door, it would unlock. Then when your presence wasn't there, it would lock automatically. That's interesting. You know, I don't know if you talk about the Tesla at all, but now that I've seen how that works with the Tesla where you just leave and it turns off and takes care of all that, that's, that's kind of handy. The other thing I like, and I'll admit to being a skeptic at first, was the Chamberlain garage door where it, uh, where you can turn it. That's one item where being able to shut the door or open it from the phone is helpful for two use cases. First of all, in our case, we've got the garage downstairs and then you walk upstairs into the house. And so getting alert that, oh, you forgot to shut the garage door and not having to go down a flight of stairs again to shut it is helpful. And then the other thing is just if someone needs to get into the garage for something, being able to grant them that access when you're not home, that is helpful as well. All right. See, so now, now that we've discussed the things you do like, what are the things that you're like, Stacy? you've tried this out or, you know, maybe you've even purchased it and I still don't know why you've done this to me. Well, I think my main gripe is the same it was before, which is these things just don't work out of the box. 
for the most part. There's some there's something that doesn't work. And maybe because our house is a test bed and we have all these items in here, maybe they're fighting with each other over it. But, you know, even for a while, it seemed like our lights were working great. Then the ones that were connected into those GE light bulbs that are connected into the wink now, um, you know, they work part of the time. Well, we had one where I guess... They actually were connected through the Hue. And for some reason, the Hue connection to the GE link bulbs through the Amazon Echo suddenly didn't work anymore. And I'm not sure actually what happened. So then I switched them over to the Wink, and then they did work. Except for that one, which we then determined was broken. Yeah, it was defective. So you've got a three, you know, you spend, what, 20 bucks on these bulbs which is a lot cheaper than the Hughes, but Hughes, but then you've got three months later, one of them, the Z-Wave stopped working on it. So thankfully, yeah. uh, Home Depot was really easy it was to do Zigbee. a swap, but Zigbee, sorry. I, I told the lady at Home Depot, the Wi-Fi broke on them, but I don't think it mattered. I don't think she had any idea what I was talking about. She just wrote as return light doesn't turn on or something like that. But so, but then even the Hughes don't always work now, right? I mean, if we tell... You know, if we say, Alexa, turn off living room lights, I mean, it seems like at least 20% of the time it doesn't work. I would say so that's, I that's too high. I think it's like 5, 5% of the time it doesn't work, but I think right. they just did an update that should help that. Okay. So I haven't seen it not work in quite some time. But yes, you're right. right. We'll keep count. Okay. Now, you know, her, her voice recognition seems to be getting better. I remember at first she couldn't always understand what we were saying. But the really handy thing to me on, on Alexa is we're going upstairs and being able to say, Alexa, turn off downstairs. And at that point, we're halfway up the stairs. So we have light from upstairs. We can see so we don't trip. And everything downstairs goes off when it works. Okay. So what would your advice be to someone like... If you're hanging out with your friends and, and someone mentions like, hey, I think I'm going to buy a connected device or I'm interested in home automation, um, other than maybe you tell them talk to Stacey or maybe you say, God, don't talk to my wife. What would you tell them about what they should buy? I mean, do you pick a, like, actually open-ended? What yeah, would you tell I them? Think, I, well, I think the hues are cool and they're fairly simple. Um, you know, you do have a hub that you have to plug in. But they're fairly simple, and they're a neat party trick, if nothing else. Um, yes, there are some cool practical things, such as having them go on when you're out of town and, and being able to control them when you're walking away, telling them to turn off. Um, but I think those are neat, and it's kind of an all-in-a-box solution, too, right? You get the, what, three bulbs and the hub. So that's interesting. And then the other would probably be locks. I think we did some cool, that presence tech, but then, then you're getting into smart things and a hub as well. So it gets complicated there. But I know people that do like short-term rentals on houses or have people come in and need them to be able to come in to do something real quick. They give them, you know, a one-time use passcode or something like that. That I think is practical as well. But I'd, I'd probably start with, and, and I know you say your guests get frustrated with you talking about light bulbs all the time, but it's the simplest, easiest example too. Okay. Not like a thermostat? You don't feel like we're getting our value out of our connected thermostats or anything? Well, that's a good point. You know, I, for, I forget about those being connected. And maybe that's because they just work well in the background, right? I don't, the only time I log into those from, say, my phone is when something, you know, out of the ordinary is happening, right? We're traveling or something like that. So, you know, that's a good point. That's a fairly easy on-ramp. And, well, I guess they were sort of easy to install. 
we had to get a little bit of help there. You know, the hue bulbs, though, anyone can do that, right? Anyone can screw in a light bulb. Well, there are a lot of jokes about that, but anyone can. And I think anyone can just put the uh, hub, plug it into the back of their router. Um, so I, I really think that's easier, right? You're not installing something per se. Okay. Well, and let's let's go back to the thermostats. And my latest thing, because it has been the hotter months of the year here in Texas, we've been talking about different kind of products that help you optimize your air conditioning. And by optimize, I'm not talking about like, not like in the nest kind of way, but more in the way of making sure that your air conditioning is running most efficiently. So there's a product from mm. Emerson called Comfort Guard. And what this is, you have to have a professional installer coming out. And what they do is they install about $100 worth of sensors into your furnace, your ducts, and your air conditioning unit that sits outside your house. And then you pay like an eight to $10 monthly fee and those sensors gather data and it's like a predictive analytics kind of service for your home. So it's supposed to be checking all of the data from those sensors and saying, Hey, it looks like your air conditioner is only running at 60% efficiency right now. You should call someone and have them come out. Or maybe because the installer who installed it is having a contract with you, maybe they come out and install or come out and look at it. So mm -hmm. we were talking about that. There's also some kind of interesting new things tied to data coming out soon. I can't talk about all of them. But then we also had our HVAC guy come out just the other day for a regular maintenance check. And he told us some cool stuff. So, Andrew, you want to talk about some of that? I think the more interesting thing about what he said. So, obviously, he has an incentive to somehow make money from us. Well, I mean, this, this guy doesn't think about it that way, right? He's the tech. But... I think it was interesting what he said, and I think it's interesting because we I feel like some of the things you tell me about from smart home connected devices kind of get ahead of themselves, right? They aren't solving a huge problem. And so I would question, in this case, he's like, well, look, so this is our first time we've been in this house, you know, almost a few years of the guy out. It's 150 bucks, right? It says everything's working fine, cleans, cleans off something on the outside, pours a little of that bleach stuff into the uh, each of our units. He's like, well, you know, installing something, if you just get if you just get fairly regular maintenance on these, you're going to catch it in advance. You know, even a leak on something isn't something that overnight, you know, it loses all its power or something like that. So I guess the question is, you know, how much it costs and how much it costs ongoing and having a professional come out and install it, are we really fixing that big of a problem with that? Well, yeah. And he also said the fact that we had both an Ecobee and a Nest, so we had connected thermostats. He was like, if mm. those things detect a problem or anom anomalous usage, they will also let you know, which I thought was kind of interesting as well. And then... Yeah, I haven't I haven't checked to see what they would actually do. I, I yeah, I was... I was, I was a little curious about that myself. I was like, I did not think they would do that. But we also are running the breaker things from curb. So we're checking our mm -hmm. energy usage in real time. And that actually will send us a notification if it sees that we're using more fine. energy. Yeah. And the curb is neat, but you know, there's another one where, you know, you have to have an electrician come out. I'm sure, I don't know how much it is, but I'm sure it's expensive. And it's like, well, even from a cost savings perspective, right? I mean, maybe it's because we don't use a lot of energy, relatively speaking, but you know, how much are you going to save versus how much does it cost is one of those things that I think when I see some devices that can potentially 
prevent something mildly bad from happening or save you money, it's, well, if my payback period is five years, eh, I'm probably not interested. Wow. See, on an air conditioning, I feel like because those things are like $9,000, it feels like... Well, if something was to go wrong that would actually break it and make you have to replace the entire thing, well, that's one thing. But if it's, oh, look, it's not working as well as it needs to be, even if you don't have anything connected to know, oh, man, why was my utility bill so much higher than usual? At that point, then you pick up the phone, you have someone come out and they say, oh, look, it's because of this. This is dirty or this isn't working or your compressor's failing. They fix it. You know, most of the time that's four or 500 bucks, let's say. I mean, that, you know, rarely does something happen where they have to come out and replace both the units, especially on newer ones. And if it's on older ones, it's probably going to happen anyway. I mean, it's just kind of time to replace them. That's true. And I get very excited about the possibilities of all of this data because I'm looking so far ahead. But you're right. As a homeowner, it seems very, it's a very difficult sell. So I guess we'll see. So any final thoughts um, for anyone in this industry? Uh, You as a guy who is kind of like probably way more mainstream buyer of all of this tech than anybody else, like especially me and Kevin, what is your advice to people who are building this industry right now? I'd say make it simple. Make sure there's a very easy to understand ROI and then make it work out of the box. By the time it ships, it just has to it has to work. You know, I think it seems like, and, and I know you get plenty of alpha things that we test here, but one too many curse words have been said, you know, trying to get these things to, to work. All right. I got to ask, what about your data privacy? Are you worried about that? Not particularly. You know, the only thing, cameras are the one thing that concern me a little bit. I like the idea of cameras on the outside of the home, just because, you know, someone breaks in or something, then hopefully you can get a picture of them. That doorbell we have is kind of neat. Um, where if someone walks up to it, it, it could take some video of them. Frankly, I'm not, I mean, I don't know what the Nest is going to get that is going to really cause a privacy issue for me. Um, you know, I guess I could see one of these being used in a court case when someone says they were somewhere and they weren't, you know, that, that sort of thing. But yeah, it's mostly cameras and making sure that my privacy, you know, nothing's exposed that way. Got it. All right. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the show today. And I'm glad to be a fill in for Kevin, but I'm sure your guests will be thrilled when he's back next week. Oh, nonsense. They love the perspective from guy who doesn't necessarily, I I was going to say no much, but that's not the right word. The guy who doesn't necessarily love the smart home. How's that? You (laughs) do know. He's engrossed in it. Yeah. There you go. All right. All right. Well, just just let me know where to pick up my paycheck for this week's episode. And, and I appreciate you inviting me on. There you go. I'm like, your paycheck? It's uh, in the mail. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Stay tuned for our guest this week, who is Nandini Nayak, who is going to talk to us about building living services and how big companies and small companies are going to have to adapt to having connected devices everywhere. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is Stacey Higginbotham, and today my guest is Nandini Nayak. She is the design strategy leader at Fjord, and she is also, for the time being, heading up their San Francisco design studio. Hi, Nan. How are you doing? 
I'm good, Stacey. How are you? I am awesome this morning. So I am really excited to talk to you because you have actually, when I met you a couple months back, you actually put into words very eloquently a concept that I had been thinking about for a while, which is this idea of living services. Do you want to kind of talk about what that is? That's right. Um, You know, living services is a concept that Fjord has talked about. I mean, all of you guys talk about the Internet of Things. And, you know, the fact that, you know, you can have computing capability and lots of devices around us, everyday devices. But I think what we believe is the more interesting aspect of this technology is really about how they enable a new kind of service set, a new kind of living service set. And what do I mean by that? It's really about finally digital services becoming more human-like, you know, more responsive to context, more uh, meeting human expectations. So we call this the era of living services. You know, we started out uh, with the age of the internet where, you know, finally we had access to lots of information around the world and then we went to mobility. But finally, I think computing has become so everyday that we'll expect to have everything around us begin to kind of connect together to help us live better lives. And that's the reason we've called it living services. Okay. And that's, that's a very nice overview. And I think one of the things that I thought was really compelling about it is that it offers this kind of sense of customization. So this idea that you not only design a product to put in people's homes, but what you're doing is you're again, building a service and the service Mm -hmm. is unique for each. Maybe it's individuals, maybe it's a family that lives in the home and consumes this service. I guess it could be a corporation. We can talk about that. So you're developing this, this service, but it doesn't, what, what I think is key for businesses is that it doesn't end with the purchase of a product. It's going to exist far and away beyond that purchase. So it could go, it could be a washing machine that I'm going to buy, but I'm also going to consume some sort of, maybe it's a replenishment service with it, or maybe it is, I don't know, maybe it's a warranty that's actually a little bit more interactive, but can you kind of give us an example of some of these living services as you see it? That's right. I think fundamentally um, living services emerged from two forces, right? One is what you're just talking about is the digitization of everything, which means that everyday devices, a washing machine, your fridge, Uh, maybe even your pencil or your fork may have some level of ability to sense the environment around it, to capture some data, and also respond in specific ways. Uh, And therefore, you know, these objects by themselves are not the products you might buy. It is the service or human intent they they, they service. So let's talk about the washing machine that you just spoke about. You know, whenever I'm in doing laundry, I almost always forget to check whether there's enough detergent um, in, in the cupboard above me, whether I have all the different detergents I use for different types of fabrics and so on. So imagine a, a washing machine in the future that actually is able to tell me whether I have enough detergent, uh, that I am running out of something, one of them, and be able to all, already kind of add that to my shopping list, or even better, automatically signal the brand to send it over to me if I subscribe to some type of replenishment service. So then I don't even have to think about, oh, do I have enough detergent of the right kind? Um, All the detergent is almost magically always there. So 
it automates a mundane task uh, that adds burden to my day-to-day life. Uh, similarly, you may think about cereal in the upper uh, <laughs> cupboard in my kitchen. Or you may think about whether my mother is out of uh, artificial sweetener because she's a diabetic. And so I need to make sure she, that it is there and otherwise she's tempted to uh, have regular sugar. So what we're seeing with these types of services is that the product or the hard product itself now becomes sort of an ongoing service and has sort of a participation in my life, not just as a washing machine, but an ability to help me deal with the task of uh, washing dishes or washing clothes. Eventually, you may even think about whether the the interface that that washing machine has could do other things. Like in my laundry room, I have other things going on. Like how often do I come in to do laundry? Do I do laundry versus my son does laundry? And he does it differently. So will we have settings that he does everything in one pile while I separate everything into six piles? Will that support my behavior differently than his? Which goes to the point of what you were talking about is, will these services personalize themselves to individuals? So that, you know, when I walk into the room, it knows to create a set of settings for how I might do laundry. So you can imagine how this could extend into the future in terms of how the environment, the ecosystem begins to connect to individuals who are, who are present and shapes themselves around that individual. Okay. And these examples sound very kind of consumer-oriented in maybe not just consumer, but consumption-oriented. So I'm thinking Amazon mm-hmm. Dash, for example, or Amazon's mm-hmm. replenishment services are very, yes. very kind of nascent maybe steps to this. But let's think about, can you bring living services outside of me buying more stuff, if that makes sense? Because right now this feels very much aligned with buying things yes. that I need right now, but let's take it to something else. Let's think about the work environment, right? So when people are working today, you know, most uh, companies have sort of a one-size-fits-all philosophy to, you know, work practices. You know, you come in at a certain time, you leave at a certain time, you sit at certain types of desks. Uh, you don't differentiate between how I like to work versus how Stacy may like to work. Uh, whether I uh, am most alert during the morning times, whereas Stacey, like you know, is most alert in the evening times. So uh, a lot of um, standardized practices in workplaces may not really be helping productivity to be maximized. So uh, you're beginning to see companies think about how people need to be supported when they are doing intense, you know, highly cognitive work. And, you know, how do they set up that environment for that type of work uh, versus somebody who's working in a more collaborative context? So you begin to have um, centers in, in maybe in computers, but in, in the surrounding environment where people are working, where they can signal that they are doing a certain type of work, where then the environment may adjust itself to support that type of work. So it's not so much consumption-oriented, it's actually uh, oriented around what might be the optimum work environment? And even in the washing machine case, it's the optimum ecosystem for that task to happen. So I think if you think about it as what are the human intentions that are being supported and how do you support them through capturing the right signals about that person, their habits, their current um, you know, task at hand, then you'll begin to see you know, work environments adjust to that as well. 
you can also think about a similar consumption example with uh, printing, right? So, you know, ordering printing supplies similar to how a washing machine may order, you know. Oh, sure. And I can think of in the home, if you want to leave the laundry room, which is kind of a crazy specific example, (laughs) but you can even think of, gosh, is if my, my home can read my context clues appropriately, it could figure out, oh, Gosh, Stacy right now is getting ready to cook. I'm, I'm reading the symbols. She's she's coming into the kitchen. She's turning on her work lights right above the counter. You know, she's she's washing her hands. She's made like six trips to the refrigerator and then to the pantry. Those are all pretty indicative of setting her prep, getting her yeah. prep together. So then my kitchen can start adapting itself to, you know, my kitchen settings, which is in addition to that lighting, yeah. there's certain music I like. It'd be awesome if, like, my robotic butler could bring me my glass of cooking wine, you know. But, you know, we'll get there. My Amazon yeah. Echo could start, you know, pulling up the recipe that I, I've set. And, you know, we I, I can see these kind of things starting to develop. And that is not consumption. That is purely a service that would help me out. It leads to consumption. Hopefully the consumption yeah. of delicious food. And in 20 minutes yeah. or less. And it actually, uh, I think one of the important things we like to say about this is uh, we need to stop thinking about industries the way we have defined them today, right? So if you think about industries, then you begin to think about products and the hard products that are verticalized. But soon, because we are talking about supporting human patterns, we probably think about ecosystems of services that make cross-industry. Okay. So like in that example, an ecosystem, is it a kitchen ecosystem? So then I might need, because I don't have all appliances from one vendor, I would need my Samsung refrigerator to talk to my Bosch dishwasher and my Delta faucet and my, I don't know who makes my pots and pans. They're not connected, but you know, getting all that. Plus I'm going to want my cookbooks and recipes to be communicating also, and probably to like my fitness stuff, but also to my families, because it would be nice to know what they've been going through that day, or maybe what they've got on track. Cause if my husband's planning on a 13 mile run tomorrow to help train for his marathon, maybe I can cook something that helps him prepare for that. Exactly. And you may know that he's planning for a 13 mile marathon, even before he tells you because of the behavior patterns he's expressing, you may alert you and say, hey, it's like he might be going on a run tomorrow, right? And adjust your patterns. And I think that also means that, you know, there is a connectedness between these types of services. You know, there needs to be a platform that allows you to connect these individualized, what we call atomized services. So we believe services become atomized, smaller in size, based on what specific intent they're surfacing. But then how do they connect to all of the other services in the context of that one? Then you say, well, then what is the brand? What is the, you know, what is brand in that context? I think that's going to be an interesting evolution of what brands mean. You know, if every small atomized service is trying to create its own brand, maybe it doesn't support the sense of connectedness. So I think it's going to be an interesting um, time to examine how branding plays with the notion of living services. Well, let's talk about that because right now I see, if I think about brand in that context, especially in the home, I've got like, uh, we'll just call it works with X. So we've got works Mm -hmm. with HomeKit, works with Nest, works with whatever brand is out there. But if I'm GE or if I'm Bosch or, and that's in the consumer space, if I'm in the enterprise space, if I'm IBM or if I'm Cisco, 
how do I build a brand around these experiences? Or do I build a brand around experiences or do I build a brand around products or a service? Or I don't even know, Nan, help me, my God. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think these are going to be the interesting questions, right? So if, if you want to build a brand, and I think we've talked a bit about, you know, how many true brands can a human sort of have a relationship with, if you will, in the very human context, right? So there will be many, many brands which have all these atomized services. And sometimes it's not the single service, but it's a collection of services that creates sort of a higher order of value for the, for the consumer or the worker. And that may be a branded service. So ultimately, it depends upon what platforms emerge and whether uh, branding becomes sort of important in terms of recognition of a consistent logo or a consistent sort of uh, method of how you do things, or whether it is the collection of brands that actually has a true you know, brand recognition. So maybe product brands have to figure out how they become uh, experienced brands, and it will be the experienced brands that create these connections in the most effective, most comprehensive way that becomes the brands we recognize, right? So, for example, if you look at any of our computing products, there's so many components that sit inside that that nobody knows are there, right? But they participate in creating that total computing product for you. And therefore, similar things may happen in the services area as well. It is not going to be the smaller brands, but the overall set of what we call a living brand that creates the adjacencies, the connections, the collections of services that you recognize as something that, you know, participates in your life. So I don't uh, think we have answers to that yet, but I think it will be a, a transformational time when this happens. So we're going to have a reduction in the value of brands, it sounds like. And what's going to happen is we're going to have a quote unquote living brand. It's going to be kind of yes. experiential and it's going to be, these brands are going to be these curated, I guess we'll call it a platform of these atomized mm -hmm. services and experiences. So then my question to you is, as I'm building out these platforms, does this living brand, so this, this monolithic platform, are they choosing who they play with? Is there no like real interoperability or are they going to be doing the hard work of making things interoperate? And as the consumer, does that mean we're going to have to choose between an established cluster of brands and experiences as opposed to kind of building our own? Yeah, I think more and more, you know, given the you know, number of living services, atomized living services that come come available, you you want to have known trusted brand, if you will, curate a set of experiences for you, right? Similar to think about it like a travel agent where you say, okay, I need you to curate all of the travel services for me all the way from uh, booking all of the right locations, booking all of the right travel uh, from point to point, all of the experiences I'll have, you know, sort of the collection which is my whole travel experience of going to a particular destination, right? So you may begin to see, you know, for example, Airbnb may become that brand for travel because they are curating a certain part of that experience, but they are beginning to look at adjacencies and they may combine with other adjacent services. And you may think about Airbnb as that trusted brand who do all of that for you. 
maybe have some flexibility in picking um, sub-services from different brands. So I think it will be interesting to see how the whole product, if you will, there may be an end-to-end experience and then how you either give up control to one of those brands to curate that entire thing or curate major portions where then you want to have some flexibility or control over certain aspects of it. So I think it will be interesting to see how this notion of living brands comes alive where your total experience may be a combination of brands with one or two of them having major roles. Okay, that, that makes sense? It does. That makes sense. All right. And so if you're an established company, as opposed to mm-hmm. a startup, how do you kind of, if you want to develop a living service, how do you kind of get there? And then do these companies, established companies, have an advantage in establishing a living brand or does a startup? Yes. So let's think about what it takes to create a living service, right? To create a living service, a fundamental is that you have to know on an ongoing basis the context of where how the service will render, the context of the consumer, the worker, uh, which is who is being supported. You know, how do you know the context on an ongoing basis? You know, not only about the individual, but the environments they're in, the devices they're using, how they're connecting to other places. So that's one aspect. We call that the no dimension. The other dimension is the flex. And how do you then flex or adjust your service to take those signals that you're getting from maybe sensors in the uh, in the environment to adjust or tune uh, those experiences? So this no versus flex dimension, the intersection of them is where you can think about the playing ground for the creation of living services. For small companies, I think um, there may be a bit of an advantage to because they may not have um, the history of how they have known, if you will, up to this point, their customer base. You can start afresh. But I think the, uh, the one suggestion would be is that they should not just think about themselves as a product company. You should always think about, well, how is that product playing into a human experience scenario? And what are the adjacencies around that product? So they create a more fuller capability that allows you to, you know, even have an API or a connection into other services. So what they offer is something more complete. So a small company could think about, well, if I knew um, something beyond what I'm trying to design, so if I'm designing of clothes, for example. But if I knew that these clothes were going to be worn in a warm environment, should I put a sensor in to figure out, you know, how warm it's going to be? I mean, clothes could have sensors, right? Or a retail store could have sensors. And maybe then you can adjust to say, oh, if you are going to be in that type of environment, maybe I can offer you adjacent products as well or services as well. So I think uh, new companies can begin to think about uh, products in terms of services or living services or living experiences, and I think that is a benefit to uh, starting afresh. For more established companies, I think the challenge is they have lots and lots of data, and often they don't know how to extract the patterns that matter. So one of the things that uh, Fjord is doing to think about this problem is to understand how to in a sense, understand what's in the data. Are there patterns? Are there insights from the data that can be used to create new living points and living services? On the other hand, you could also ask yourself uh, as a large company, 
what contextual information could enhance the product or service that I'm already creating or is already in market. And often they don't ask that because they're very tunnel visioned into this is how I think about my customers and who they are and how I offer the service. I think a little bit more transformation for larger companies to think about how to change the viewpoint of how they're thinking about their product or service. So I think there's more transformational work on the big big company side and more sort of innovation that can be built from the start from a small company perspective. That makes sense. And when it comes to building a living brand, do mm-hmm. bigger companies have it easier? I think because they have an established brand, it would seem that they may have an advantage but I think it depends upon whether they're keeping up with this trend, right? So I think bigger companies are beginning to see that they can't be just product companies. They have to turn into service or um, you know, experience companies. And in the companies that move in that direction, where they're beginning to do mashups with smaller um, you know, services that are adjacent and creating a new version of themselves, they can then clearly use their brand presence to, you know, to leap in the space. I think to, to that extent, uh, you can say it's a very positive. On the other hand, if you don't express to the market that you're beginning to do that, then you tend to be as an old brand provides products, right? So it could be a benefit as well as a disadvantage depending upon how fast you're moving. Well, Nan, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. And I've learned a lot. Thank you, Stacey, for having me. That's it for this week's podcast. Please join us again next week for the Internet of Things podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you.